Thank As you're aware, we're taking a pause from Genesis over this month of December as we take a look at Christmas coming up, a time when we celebrate the birth of Jesus. And so we, we wanted to take some time these three weeks and, uh, and really dig into a little bit um, what Christmas is all about. And Christmas is all about not the presents, it's not all about the, the wonderful uh, food whether it's, you know, I don't, I don't know what your Christmas traditional food is. Uh, my wife's traditional Christmas food growing up, I think, was lasagna, right? Lasagna. So it's a, they're not even Italian. I don't know what, what, where that came from. But uh, so they, they, maybe it's cheap. I don't know. Uh, but their, their Christmas tradition is, is, is uh, lasagna. And uh, I think we've had that kind of as a side dish before. Um, but to some people, it's ham. And maybe you have special traditions special Christmas traditions. Um, maybe you open presents on Christmas Eve. Maybe you wait till Christmas morning. Maybe you have stockings. Maybe you don't. I, there's lots of different things that, that, uh, that people do when it comes to Christmas. And, and it's easy for us to get caught up in the activity of Christmas and forget about the person of Christmas, uh, which is sad because his name is right in the word, is it not? Christmas. And yet so often we, we forget about that. And, and even in, in Christian homes, often you hear of having a, a bad Christmas where there's maybe fighting in a family or uh, just problems, things don't, don't go well and, and uh, Christmas is ruined. Well, Christmas is never ruined if our perspective is right, if our mind is set on who Christmas is about. So that's why our goal over these three weeks and then of course, uh, on the 22nd, the, the Sunday before Christmas, is to keep our minds stayed on Jesus. And last week, Andy uh, spoke on Jesus as the, the promised Messiah, the one that Israel was looking to and that, and that we are looking back to. And he, and he went through and he talked about how Jesus could be the only Messiah. And he gave us a passage from the book of Psalms. Anybody remember what chapter? Starts with a one. 110. There we go. All right. Somebody looked at her notes. Uh huh. All right. (laughs) Psalm 110, talking about David, talking about my Lord, and and how it could only be God, the Son of God, who could be the Messiah. And Jesus was that Messiah. And he claimed to be that Messiah. And he is our Messiah. This morning, we're going to look at uh, the message that we've entitled. Uh, the prophecy fulfilled. Yeah, believe it or not, we actually, we planned out these titles before we wrote the messages. Isn't that cool? <laughs> uh, so the prophecy fulfilled. And, and when we come to Christmas, um, there's lots of prophecies that we can think of, are there not? Um, there, there's prophecies about Christ's birth, about the place of his birth, about uh, the, the style of his birth, the fact that he would be born of a virgin. And we're going to look at some of those this morning, uh, but they're really going to more support what I'd like, what I, what I, what I hope we walk away with, and that is, in my opinion, the most important prophecy in all of Scripture. And this prophecy was not completely fulfilled at the birth of Christ, but the birth of Christ was part of the fulfillment of this prophecy. And so, uh, normally, we we are very um, specific about preaching expositionally. Uh, where we take a passage and we go through it 
verse by verse. And, and to some degree, we're going to do that this morning, but I hope you'll forgive me and, uh, and put up with a little bit more of a topical message this morning. We're going to be bouncing around a good bit uh, in, in different places in, our, in the scriptures. Um, three key passages, if you want to put your fingers in them, uh, would be Genesis chapter 3, Matthew, the first and second chapters, and then the book of Hebrews. We're going to be in several different places in the book of Hebrews. And we'll have some other verses as well. I probably won't have you turn there. But so this morning is going to be a little bit more topical, but I want to, to look at this prophecy fulfilled. What is it? What is the most important prophecy in, the, in all of the scriptures? Does anybody have a clue? I already gave you the clue when I gave you the, the passages, right? What is it? Anybody know? Genesis 3 what? 3.15, right? Let's go there. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We're going to start here and get the basis of the prophecy, and then we're going to look at five aspects of the prophecy. Five aspects of the prophecy being fulfilled. The first aspect we find here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I call this the prophecy's proclamation. And yes, if you're taking notes, there are five Ps. The prophecy's proclamation. We'll see if they make sense. <laughs> yes, I used a thesaurus. The prophecy's proclamation, Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse 15. Obviously, the, the, the context here we know pretty well. We've been going through the book of Genesis. And so we know the context here. Man has chosen to disobey God. God has told him, you can eat of any tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden, you are not to eat of it. And what happened? Chapter 3, someone comes along in the form of a serpent named Satan. And he comes along to the woman and he deceives her and causes her to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and to disobey God. And then the scripture tells us that Adam also chose to eat of the tree that he knew he was not supposed to eat from. And so we have now, in, in verse 15, it's actually starting... In verse 14, God has, has called these three together. He's got Adam and Eve and the serpent, and, and he's questioned down the line. He started with Adam, remember, and he said, why have you done this? And Adam went, the woman you gave me, it's her fault, right? And, and Eve was like, thanks a lot, man. Uh, and she goes, the snake, right? He, he, he tempted me, he tricked me, all right? And then the snake, he didn't really say anything, you know, because... He knew what he was doing, and he accomplished what he was trying to do, right? He was trying to make man disobey God, to break that relationship between man and God. And so God now is divvying out punishment for what has happened here in the garden. And he begins, not with Adam and not with Eve, but with the serpent here in verse 14, where he tells the serpent that he's going to uh, go on, the, on his belly, that he'll eat dust all his life. But verse, verse 15 is really the crux of what we want to look at this morning. God is speaking to the serpent, specifically to Satan. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now I want to just look quickly at these three things. This is the proclamation of the most important prophecy in the Bible. Proclamation of the most important prophecy in the Bible. Not, somebody tell me, why in the world would I call this the most important prophecy of the Bible? There are some pretty important prophecies, are there not? I mean, we've just gone through several of them. 
uh, specifically about Abraham, right, or Abram. We haven't got to Abraham yet. <laughs> Abram, and God has made prophecies and promises and covenants with Abram. And he's, he said, I'm going to do these great things. And it's pretty big. What is this prophecy that he's proclaiming here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15? Somebody tell me. Why is it so significant? He's proclaiming the defeat of Satan, right? That's part of it. What else? There's hope, right? Yeah, what has just happened? Their whole world basically has come to a halt. Their, complete, their relationship with the God who created everything is destroyed. And in this promise, there is hope. Not only will Satan be defeated, but there's hope for a restored relationship with God. There's going to be one who will fix the problem. And this is the most important problem that we have in all of Scripture because this problem impacts every single human being from Adam to today. And we're going to look at that a little bit later. But the problem is sin and sin that separates us from God. And God says, I am making a prophecy. I'm telling you that one day the seed of the woman will will be bruised by the serpent, but will crush the serpent's head. And there's this prophecy, and I want to look at that very quickly. It's interesting, it says, uh, the seed of the woman. Have you ever stopped to think about that? The seed of the woman. Generally, when we look at genealogies in Scripture, we see who begat whom. Fathers begat Sons, usually, right? And sometimes they throw in some daughters' names as well. But uh, typically, you know, this is very male-oriented in the genealogy, right? So-and-so begat so-and-so. This man begat this man who begat this man, etc. I mean, we just went through all that. That's, that's Eric's favorite thing to preach is the genealogies. And, uh, <laughs> and so we, we've gone through this and we understand, but it's interesting that God says the seed, not of Adam, but the seed of the woman. And we're going to see how that plays itself out in the fulfillment of this prophecy this morning. Of course, if, you're, if you've been around Scripture very long, if you've been around Christmas very long, you, you know you're already ahead of me. Nothing we talk about this morning is going to be anything new, but I hope that it will be a reminder of the amazing reality of the fulfilled promise. And that promise, that prophecy is given to us here. It's the seed of the woman, and that's going to be very interesting as we play that out. And But... but Look, it says that the serpent's going to do what? He's going to bruise his heel, right? There's going to be an effect of Satan upon this man. He, there's going to be pain. There's going to be suffering. And as we know, there's going to be death. There is an impact. Satan will have an impact on Jesus' life. Do I like the cow out of the bag? This one who is going to come, this Messiah that we talked about last week, he is going to be bruised. But he's also going to crush Satan's head. I don't know about you, but I don't like snakes. Um, my children really want a snake. Not going to happen in my house. All right? I don't care how gentle this snake is. Not in my house, all right? I have a hard time visiting the Matinee's house because they have a snake. Or at least they did. Do you still have the snake? Somewhere? That's not good. I've, that's not good. 
All right, no more life group at the Matinees. No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of snakes, and I, I don't know what it is. I mean, I, I, I've held snakes before. You know, I, 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 don't, I don't run in fear, but I don't like snakes. And quite frankly, to me, the best snake is a dead snake. Yes, thank you. There's some other people who agree with me, right? The best snake is a dead snake. And of course, you know, the best way to kill a snake is to do what, right? Crush its head, cut it off, right? Get rid of that thing because more than likely that's the thing that's going to hurt you in the end, especially if it's a venomous snake. Uh, but I just think it's interesting the imagery that God gives here. Yes, uh, this snake is going to have an impact on the promised Messiah. He's going to bruise his heel, but he's going to bruise his head. Another translation say crush his head. Right? There, which, which is more impactful? Your heel? Wound or your head wound? Head wound, right? See, Satan is going to lay a blow on Christ, but Christ is going to lay a defining, finishing blow on Satan. And that is the prophecy that we look at this morning. Yes, that prophecy includes the birth of Christ. It includes the birth of Christ. The next thing I want to look, about, look at this prophecy is the prophecy's proclamation. The second point is the prophecy's preparation. The prophecy's preparation. Uh, I didn't give you this passage. Feel free to turn there if you'd like. But Ephesians chapter 1, again, another passage that we've been in uh, not too long ago. Ephesians chapter 1, probably one you uh, are very well acquainted with. We, we go back to it fairly frequently. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. <clears throat> Paul's writing and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things to, in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The prophecy's preparation. Remember, God did not come to Genesis chapter 3 without knowing what was going on. God did not come to Genesis chapter 3 without a plan. God did not come to Genesis chapter 3 nervous. Because God had a plan from before the foundation of the world for this prophecy to be proclaimed, to be fulfilled. And the preparation of this prophecy happened before even Genesis chapter 1. Before he even spoke a word of creation, this prophecy was prepared. God had a plan to, I love the end of that, of the, the end of that passage, it says, to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. The Bible tells us that since man's sin, all of creation is groaning. Man's sin didn't just affect ourselves, didn't just affect human beings, it affected all of creation. 
because we chose to disobey. And God says, I have a prophecy, I have a plan that I've been planning from before I even created man because I knew that this would need to happen. It was my plan. So what else is part of this preparation? Well, we've been looking at some of it. Uh, We have the line of Christ, which starts with whom? Adam, obviously, but who after that? Who's kind of the next major figure in the line of Christ? What? I can't hear. Abram. Abram, yes. So we've got, <clears throat> excuse me, we've got Adam, then we've got Abram, and then who's the next person, kind of in the major figure in the line of Christ? What? David. David. What'd you say? Isaac, Jacob. We bumped them in with Abram. <laughs> All right, David, yeah. So those are, those are kind of the three. You've got Adam, you've got Abram, and you've got David. In fact, if you go to uh, Matthew chapter 1, if you've got your finger there, Matthew chapter 1, how does it start in the very first verse? Matthew writes, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abram. The son of David, the son of Abram. These are two key figures in the line of Christ. It was important that Jesus Christ come through this chosen Line. It was important that Jesus Christ be a son of Abraham, that he be an Israelite. It was important that he be a son of David. Why? Because David was what? He was king. So not only was Messiah to be a son of, of Abram, to be an Israelite, he was, going, he was to be of the line of David. And in fact, when you look at both Mary and Joseph's line, even Joseph, even though Joseph wasn't his earthly father, his, his biological father, we see that both of them were from the line of David, who was from the line of Abram. And so we see God's preparation of this prophecy being fulfilled in the line of Christ. Genesis chapter 22, verses 15 through 18. We're not there yet. We've looked at other passages, but the angel of the Lord called Abram a second time from heaven and said, this is after Abram has uh, attempted to sacrifice Isaac He says, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. That blessing for all the nations of the earth is through Jesus Christ. We have Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the genealogy of Christ. But not only has the prophecy been prepared from the beginning of the world, has not only has it been prepared through the line of Christ, but it's been prepared through the prophecies of his birth. Now think about this. God has, has prophesied in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that I am going to, through woman, I am going to produce a man who will be bruised by Satan, but who will defeat Satan. And yet, throughout the rest of Scripture, specifically the Old Testament, what he does is he continues to make it harder and harder and harder for that person to be a reality. And he does so through more and more prophecies. More and more prophecies about this coming Messiah, about what this person will be like, about who he is, where he's born. 
And some of them, you know, we, we think about a lot of them about his birth around this time, do we not? There are prophecies about Christ's birth. And it's interesting, remember when, she, when, when Eve had Cain, we discussed the fact that she was elated, right? Because she had gotten a man from the Lord. And surely part of that was just, you know, mothering instinct. I mean, I, every woman in here who's had a child has rejoiced in probably the finality of the, of the uh, labor, but also in having that child. And so she rejoiced in the child, but, you know, I, I feel like there was probably some thoughts in her that crossed her mind that maybe this, is, maybe this is the fulfillment of what God said. And yet we know how Cain turned out. He was a murderer, and he, he was uh, the people of men. They were, he was not followers of God, his descendants. And so we have, uh, we have this long-awaited-for Messiah but, but God adds these prophecies over time, over thousands of years, more prophecies about this coming Messiah and some of them about his birth that, that really limit who could be the Messiah. Of course, we have what Andy talked about last week, that the Messiah had to be divine, had to be God. I mean, is that not, of anything, the most limiting factor of all? But, but here are some of these prophecies. Matthew Chapter 1, if you're there again, Matthew chapter 1, jump down to verses 22 through 23. A very familiar passage, it says, All this took place, this is speaking of, uh, of Mary um, and, and uh, the angels coming to Joseph, and he's saying, telling Joseph what's going on with Mary, with her being pregnant. And, uh, and he says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And it's kind of nice that, you know, these New Testament passages help us out some with some of these prophecies, because, you know, we wouldn't necessarily make some of these connections, I don't think, ourselves, but God did. Isn't that nice? God made some of these connections that we might not have. But we have this, we have this prophecy given to us, and this is by Isaiah uh, in Isaiah 7, verse 14, if you want to look that up. Isaiah 7, verse 14 is where Matthew is quoting that from. Uh, skip down to chapter 2 in Matthew, and we come to verse 5. This is dealing with the wise men, and they're talking to Herod, and he's saying, you know, you know why did you come here? They said, we want to, we want to worship the new king, and, and he inquires, you know, well, what do you know about him? Because, <laughs> of course, we know Herod's motive is not uh, pure, but he wants to know, you know, how do you know about this king? And verse 5 says, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. And again, this is a prophecy made by the prophet Micah in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, if you want to write that down. And then just a few verses later, we have in verse 17 through 18 says, then was fulfilled, um, this is, Herod, they, they've left um, the, the uh, Mary and Joseph and, and Jesus are, have gone down to Egypt and Herod is killing all the children to and under. And verse 17 says, this was fulfilled, what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And then up just a few verses from that, I didn't write this down, but I saw it here. It says, this was fulfilled in verse 15. 
when they fled to Egypt. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. All these different prophecies that clearly the Israelites understood as prophecy. Matthew understood it as prophecy. He gives it to us here. And he, and he tells us, as the prophets said, as the prophet foretold, as these prophets have said, and he, and he takes these, these uh, prophecies from Scripture, from the Old Testament, and he weaves them into the story of Jesus' birth. And he shows us these prophecies from long ago about Christ's birth. So the preparation of the prophecy was not, not just God's plan before the beginning of time, not just the, the line of Christ that was required, not just the prophecies of his birth that were required, but even the prophecies of his death. Psalm chapter 41, verse 9 says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And this is David with a prophecy of whom? Anyone know? Judas. Yes. Matthew chapter 27 Verses 9 and 10 says, Then was fulfilled what, he had, what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Again, this is actually a prophecy of Judas as well uh, when he hanged himself. So we have prophecies of Christ's death, probably the most um, well-known prophecy of Christ's death is found in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 7 through 9, probably very familiar with. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, he, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. There's even more in that passage that we could go into, but prophecies not only of Christ's birth, but of his death. Psalm chapter 22, verses 1 through 18, a little bit long, but I'm going to read it anyway. This is specifically in reference to Christ on the cross. Most of these verses are generally included. Um, but again, a prophecy of David that is fulfilled on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from my words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry day by day, but you do not answer. And by night I find no rest. Yet you, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In, your father's tr in, our father's, you, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. And in you they trusted and we're not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have made me my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They up open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lion. 
I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You laid me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Sound familiar? Not only was the plan written before the foundations of the world, not only was the prophecy prepared through the line of Christ, not only was it prepared by further prophecies of his birth, not only was it prepared by further prophecies of his death, but this prophecy, this prophecy that one day someone would come and fix the problem that mankind had created, the prophecy's presentation. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. Again, what does he say? I think it's, it's interesting to point this out, is it not? God sent forth his son, born of whom? Born of a woman. The prophecy of Genesis three fifteen, The seed of the woman would bruise the serpent's head. Born of a woman, born under the law. The prophecy's presentation was an act of God. It was an act of God. Again, you look at this phrase, born of a woman, the woman's seed. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. All these things that we're very familiar with the Christmas story, and yet we must remember this presentation of the fulfillment of the prophecy is an act of God. Again, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And we've already gone over that. This was an act of God. Before she had even had relations with Joseph, before they were even married, she's found to be pregnant. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And Joseph's wanting to, you know, you know, put this away quietly. He doesn't want to make a big stink about it, but, you know, it's, she's obviously done something wrong. And God says to him, no, this is not her sin. This is an act of God. She is pregnant by the working of the Holy Spirit. This is an act of God. This is, again, a fulfillment of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the seed of the woman, an act of God. It's the only way it happens. It's the only time it has ever happened. It's the only time it ever will happen. 
God made it biologically, male and female. You need both to create children. Except this one time, because this was an act of God. The presentation of the prophecy fulfilled. Not only was it an act of God, but it was fulfilled in what I like to term divine humility. Divine humility. We know the Christmas story well. You look at Luke chapter 2, probably the most familiar passage. And many in here could probably even quote it from memory. We know that they go to Bethlehem. And, uh, and we know that Scripture tells us there was no room for them in the end. And so Jesus was born in a stable. In, in a place where the animals were kept, where they were fed. In a lowly place. In a humbling place. The King of Glory. Did you catch that in the song? Prepare Him room. The King of Glory enters in. But where does He enter in? A lowly stable. The one who, have, who has angels and seraphims and cherubims surrounding His throne shouting, Glory, glory, glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And there's more in Revelation. I, I, I won't take you there, but just praise and adoration and glory heaped upon Him. And yet, as part of the fulfillment of the prophecy of Genesis 3.15, He comes to a lowly stable. The divine humility. And not only that, but this king of glory, not a king in a palace, a lowly child of a, of a, a virgin. Many probably looked at her as just a sinner, not understanding that this was an act of God. But the divine humility to be born in those circumstances, to have the proclamation of his birth be given to the lowliest people of society, The angel comes to whom? The shepherds in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Fear not, for I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, what? A Savior. Genesis 3.15, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. To the lowliest of the low, he comes and proclaims the presentation of the prophecy of Genesis 3.15. It was an act of God, but it was done with divine humility. Philippians 2, verses 5-7 through 7 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Talk about a downgrade. <laughs> to be born in the likeness of men. Divine humility is part of the prophecy's presentation. Number four, the prophecy's perfection. You could use the word completion. I wanted to pee. So the prophecy's perfection. We know this is accomplished at the end of his life. This is Christ's death 
on the cross. This is the point in time when Christ has claimed victory over Satan through His death on the cross and through His burial, through His resurrection. And we have a couple of points here. The first thing about this perfection, about this offering that is made by Christ is that it's a sinless offering. It's a sinless offering. Again, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 24 says, for to, you, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. He was a sinless, perfect offering. Hebrews chapter four, verses, verse 15 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet what? Without sin. See, the perfection of the prophecy's fulfillment starts with the fact that Christ was perfect. He was sinless. Because He could not provide the sacrifice necessary if He were just like everyone else. Because we cannot save ourselves. We cannot pay the debt and yet escape the punishment. Only Christ, who was a perfect, sinless Son of God, could offer himself. Because not only was he a, a perfect sacrifice, not only was he a sinless sacrifice, but he was a willing sacrifice. Have you ever thought about that? Christ was a willing sacrifice. We've been going through uh, an Advent book, not as faithful as we'd like, but uh, by um, David... Uh, Pratt. Trip, thank you, Paul Tripp. And uh, one of the first few, he reminds us of the fact that Jesus was a willing sacrifice. Again, the king of glory, divine humility, willing to come to earth. But it wasn't just that he, that he was willing to come to earth. He was willing to go through that temptation that we just talked about. He was willing to, to suffer temptation. He was willing to live the perfect life as an example for us. But he was also willing to lay down his life. The end of that passage in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Of course, we know the great struggle found in Luke chapter 22, verses 41 and 42. This is when Christ is in the garden and he's, he's asked the disciples to pray and he, and he goes a little bit further says, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. As a man, Jesus had every bit of anxiety as to what was going to happen. As a man, he had every desire to not 
go through with what he knew was about to happen, the pain and the agony and the death that he was about to pay. But yet as the perfect sinless son of God, even with those human emotions, he cries out to God and says, if there's any other way, let this cup pass, but what? Not my will, but yours be done. He was willing to make that perfect sacrifice. He was willing to give his life so that that prophecy in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 would be fulfilled. But it wasn't just a sinless sacrifice or a willing sacrifice, but perhaps even most importantly, it was a blood sacrifice. And again, we don't like to talk about this that much when it comes to Christmas, right? We like to just focus on, oh, the cute little baby in the manger, right? We like to, we like to think of the nativity sets, you know, and if you're, if you're doing it correctly, the, the wise men are not there, okay? If you do it like, like my mother-in-law does, she puts them over on a coffee table some other place, you know, they're, they're traveling. Uh, yeah, exactly. You know, so they're not there. If you're doing it wrong, shame on you. But... Uh, yeah, so, so, but we like to focus on the baby in the manger because that's, that's, there's, it's hopeful, right? It's hopeful and, and there's joy there and there's celebration of this birth. But the prophecy that is being presented in Luke chapter 2 and in the beginning of Matthew is a prophecy of sacrifice. And it's not completely fulfilled without the sacrifice of Jesus and it requires a blood Sacrifice. This is a bit lengthy, but stick with me. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to be reading verses 11 through 22. It says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, talking about something uh, better than the tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this, not of this creation. It's a spiritual thing. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is a mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive a promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For, there, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, He sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is what? No forgiveness of sins. 
The relationship of man with God being reconciled requires the blood sacrifice. And while the blood sacrifice is made daily, even in the temple, in the tabernacle and in the temple, atoned for the fleshly sins, they did not atone for spiritual separation. But Christ's blood did. Revelation chapter 1, verses 5, into verse 5 through verse 6 says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He has freed us from our sins by his blood. This prophecy being fulfilled is only perfected, not only in the birth of Christ that we celebrate at Christmas, but in the death of Christ, in his blood sacrifice. Finally, the prophecy of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 is fulfilled with a wide portion. The prophecy is portion. Christ fulfilled this prophecy not for himself. Do you remember that? Christ didn't come to earth and die on the cross to fulfill something for himself. The prophecy was not something for him. It was something for us. It was something so that God could declare his glory by reconciling his creation, who without it would be lost forever. This prophecy was fulfilled for us. Christ fulfilled it for all mankind. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 19. Stay with me. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those sinning, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's disobedience the many will be made righteous. I don't want to spend a bunch of time on that because Eric has a whole sermon next week. But Christ died for all. His offer is made to all. Victory is shared by those who believe. Hebrews chapter 2 again, verses 10 through 16. 
For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are, being, who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Did you catch that? I tried to say it slowly. That he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. The seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. And it happened at Calvary. The prophecy fulfilled that we're talking about this morning Yes, there are many prophecies about his birth that were fulfilled. Many prophecies about his death that were fulfilled. In fact, there are many prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled. But the most important prophecy in all of Scripture, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, was fulfilled at the cross. Was fulfilled when Christ rose from the dead in victory. Because it was through those acts that he has reconciled Adam and his descendants to himself. That is the prophecy that we celebrate the fulfillment of this Christmas season. Father, we thank you that you are a God of prophecy, that you are a God who fulfills that prophecy, that you are a God that we can trust. We can look back on these prophecies that you have fulfilled and see how in man's eyes, how impossible it should be for them to have been fulfilled. And you did that on purpose so that we would know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And as we celebrate his birth this Christmas season, I pray that we would remember the most important prophecy, the prophecy, yes, of his birth, but mostly of his death and the victory that it gives us through his sacrifice. We thank you for that this morning and we pray that we would not forget that this Christmas holiday or, or this, this life. I pray that this would be something that is reminded uh, of us in our own minds every day, that we would remember who it is that we are worshiping, who it is that we are serving, who it is that we are living for and what he has done for us. And we will praise you for it, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.